Good morning. In today's headlines, a suspect at large in New England after two deadly shootings with at least 16 people dead and up to 50 injured. Learn what's known so far about authorities' person of interest. Who is newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson? We take a look at his past experience and what he plans to do next. Warnings of impending strikes on U.S. bases in Iraq. Is there a link between those hostilities and the Hamas terrorist attack on Israel? A retired Army colonel says there is. Find out what he says needs to be done. The Israel-Hamas war could be shifting the balance of power in the world. We speak to an analyst to give us the details on what this could mean for the U.S. The UAW and Ford have reached a tentative contract agreement. It could be a breakthrough toward ending the Detroit strikes. What happens next? How is pro-Hamas propaganda shaping views of the American public? We speak to the host of America's Hope about the growing tide of anti-Semitism. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. Good morning. I'm Evelyn Lee. Today is Thursday, October 26th. Really important breaking news to get to. And first, we just want to say that we are so sympathetic to all of the victims in this tragedy. Right. So some tragic news, as Kevin just mentioned, last from last night. A New England manhunt is underway now after two shootings in Maine last night. At least 16 people were killed and up to 50 injured. Police did not say how many of those injuries were from gunfire. The shootings happened at a restaurant and bowling alley in the city of Lewiston around 7 p.m. local time. With the suspect still at large, police are asking locals to shelter in place. Here's what's known about a person of interest. Police are currently searching for a Robert R. Carr, 4-4-1983 of Bowling. Carr is considered armed and dangerous. He is a person of interest, however, and that's what we'll uh, label him at uh, moving forward until that changes. If people see him, they should not approach Card or make contact with him in any way. Uh, the shelter-in-place order that currently stands in Lewiston remains. The safety commissioners stress that Card is a person of interest only and not yet listed as a suspect. The 40-year-old is a certified firearms instructor and member of the U.S. Army Reserve. Law enforcement officials say Card has reported mental health issues, which included hearing voices. Authorities say he recently threatened to carry out a shooting at a National Guard facility in the state. Police released pictures of a suspect, a bearded man in a long-sleeved shirt and jeans holding a rifle in the firing position, along with a picture of a vehicle of interest found in Lisbon about eight miles from the scene. The shelter-in-place has been expanded to Lisbon as well. The FBI and state police are asking anyone with information or tips to call in. A news conference on the shootings will be held this morning at Lewiston City Hall. It starts at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time. And after a turbulent three weeks searching for a speaker, the House of Representatives finally decided on a leader. House Republicans voted unanimously to elect Speaker Mike Johnson on the first ballot yesterday. The ascension of the 56th House Speaker clears the way for the lower chamber to resume its basic duties and respond to the crisis in the Middle East. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on what you need to know about newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson. House Speaker Mike Johnson has been a man of many hats. 
Vice Chair of the House Republican Conference, he's been Chair of the Republican Study Committee and held the Assistant Leadership role of GOP Deputy Whip. He sat on the Judiciary Committee, the Armed Services Committee, and the Select Committee on Weaponization of the Federal Government. The Louisiana Republican was first elected to the House in 2016. The 51-year-old attorney with a focus on constitutional law now has a series of near-immediate decisions to make and the challenge of uniting fractures within the GOP majority. Johnson's first move as Speaker was bringing a non-binding resolution to the floor, reaffirming support of Israel's right to self-defense. It passed with strong bipartisan approval, with over 400 lawmakers backing the measure. Let the enemies of freedom around the world hear us loud and clear. The People's House is back in business. The newly elected Speaker's agenda focuses heavily on completing the appropriations process before the government funding deadline next month. Johnson says he aims to pass eight remaining appropriations bills in quick succession and wants to avoid a repeat end-of-year frenzy in 2025 by having bills done by the end of July without recess until all 12 appropriations bills are approved. He proposed moving some bills out of appropriations and into working groups to address problems including the failed farm bill last month. He did not rule out another stopgap spending bill. Johnson has opposed further aid to Ukraine, voting against a close to $40 billion aid package in May. He supported bills to tighten border security, prohibit mask mandates on planes, and stop gender-related surgery and hormone procedures on teens. Johnson has been a vocal supporter of former President Trump and was among the nearly 140 Republicans that disputed 2020 Electoral College results. He is the author of an unsuccessful appeal from House Republicans to the Supreme Court to have the integrity of the election looked at. That was over changes to voting procedures in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan during the pandemic, he argued were unconstitutional. Trump reacted to Johnson's victory, saying he's a tremendous leader and will be a great speaker. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. For more insight into what we can expect from the House led by Speaker Johnson, we're bringing in Lawrence Wilson, a reporter for the Epic Times. Good morning, Lawrence. Thanks for taking the time to speak with us this morning. Good morning. What do you expect the House to be like under Johnson's leadership? And do you think he'll have success in those agenda items that we just mentioned? Well, that remains to be seen. What it'll look like is more open, uh, more input from members. He is committed to following regular order. Now, that said, he's got a very short time frame to deal with these appropriations bills. And <clears throat> he's still dealing with the same divide within the Republican caucus. You have some very far right members, you have some very moderate members. So I think he's going to try to move quickly, set a clear direction and try to rally this house together, especially to get these appropriations done by hopefully November 17th. Moving quickly is definitely a priority given that they were in deadlock for so long and that November deadline is looming. Johnson said that he he supported the impeachment inquiry when McCarthy unanimously launched this, unilaterally launched this, and he said that that's the second greatest power that Congress holds, and he said that they're going to get to work. So what can we expect to happen here? Well, that inquiry is going to continue. It's being led, of course, by three committee chairs, uh, Jim Jordan, James Comer, and Jason Smith. Now, for Johnson, the real hot fire here is appropriations, so how much energy he puts that into the impeachment inquiry immediately remains to be seen. Also, let's remember there are 18 uh, Republicans in so-called purple districts that supported Biden in 2020. So uh, Mr. Johnson wants to expand the majority and he, he's going to have to have some very, very clear criteria for moving forward with an actual impeachment because it could endanger 
some members on the middle, uh, in the middle or on the, the further left in the conference. Speaker Johnson was elected unanimously from the GOP conference. So what qualifications led him into the speakership that Representative Steve Scalise, Jim Jordan, and Tom Emmer lacked? Well, as one congressional staffer told us, no enemies. <laughs> the longer you're around Washington, uh, the, the more you define yourself and the more you have interactions with people who, who don't want to go your way. He's not been a political fighter. He's been known as a policy guy. So he's been a little more collaborative and made a lot of relationships. He has a great reputation uh, for being a person of character. He's also a staunch conservative, and that really appealed, obviously, to those who are on the right. So a lot of people like him and were able to accept him where they just weren't the other candidates. And Johnson's not, he's not a firebrand. He might not have really been a household name before this point in time. So how could someone like him rise to the position? Well, it's based on the fact that he's very smart. <clears throat> he's very uh, policy savvy. Uh, he came out with a good agenda that people latched onto, and he has a good direction overall for the House. I think if anybody got to see a little bit of his speech uh, yesterday, <clears throat> he came out uh, very calm, but very forceful, showing that he could control, or trying to project that he could control this cantankerous group of Republicans. And I think he won the respect of enough of them to rise up to that position. Just briefly here, Lawrence, is the onus on Johnson in the House to move quickly here, given that they were speakerless for so long? Well, it is. And it's for Mr. Johnson, it's not just to make up for the lost three weeks. Obviously, he has to really move fast on appropriations now. But his overall goal, he said, is to restore the people's faith in Congress specifically and really in government in general. So he wants to show that the House will stay at it put in the time, get the work done, and produce results for the American people. He's already talking about altering the schedule to keep people in Washington uh, if the bills don't get passed. So he's trying to create sort of a fresh start and use this, the urgency of the moment in order to do that. I really appreciate your update with us this morning. Lawrence Wilson, reporter for the Epic Times. My pleasure. Coming up, drama and tension in the New York courtroom. Former President Trump's team drills ex-attorney Michael Cohen and Trump himself getting hit with his second sanction for violating a gag order. Representative Jamal Bowman was charged with falsely pulling a fire alarm. He's reached a plea deal with prosecutors. Find out the terms. A school district's policy allowing students to use opposite-sex facilities came under fire in Pennsylvania yesterday as some students staged a walkout. Get that story when we come back. Good to have you back. A judge hits former President Trump with a $10,000 fine. It's the second sanction for violating the gag order. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has the details. Former President Trump took the stand Wednesday for a brief hearing on whether or not he violated a New York gag order. Judge Arthur Angeron, who is presiding over the civil fraud case, accused Trump of making a disparaging remark about his law clerk. 
The judge read an article by the Associated Press about comments made by Trump during a court break. According to the article, Trump said a person who is very partisan sitting alongside the judge, perhaps more partisan than he is. Trump testified that he made the statement but said he was referring to the witness, Michael Cohen. But the judge didn't believe him. Trump's attorneys pointed out that it was very unusual for a law clerk to sit next to a judge and that it was distracting to see the law clerk writing notes, rolling her eyes, and whispering to the judge. They said the influence coming from the bench was completely inappropriate. The judge saying that's how he does things and defending his law clerk. After further consideration, the judge said the $10,000 sanction he ordered would stand. Trump's attorneys said they will appeal. In other courtroom action, Michael Cohen returns to the stand to face pointed questions about his motives for turning on former President Trump. Cohen, defiant and combative, often making his own objections to defense questions. Trump's team challenged Cohen's credibility. Trump's attorney, Alina Haba, first established that Cohen had lied before. So what just happened, as you know, is the witness was fully impeached. He admitted that he lied. Cohen admitted that he lied to another New York judge when he pleaded guilty to tax fraud. He just admitted that he lied. Whether or not Cohen is a liar is central to the defense because he's a key witness for the state. The state began investigating Trump's finances after Cohen testified to Congress in 2019 that Trump inflated his wealth. Haba confronted him with his past praises of Trump from 2011 to 2017. For example, Cohen admitted to saying in a July 13, 2016 tweet, thank you and believe wholeheartedly that only Trump will make America great again. Cohen also admitted to saying in April 2011, it's very, very surreal. I've been admiring Donald Trump since I was in high school. As for Cohen's adversarial relationship with Trump in recent years, he admitted to having a financial incentive to criticize his former boss and has been criticizing Trump to the media, in podcasts, on social media, and in books that he's written. In other action, the judge absolutely denied the defense's request for a dismissal based on the witness's testimony, saying there was enough evidence against Trump to fill the courtroom. Arlene Richards, NTD News. The ACLU is backing Trump in his battle over free speech. A vocal critic of the former president in the past, the group is now coming to his defense to oppose a gag order from a federal judge. The ACLU said yesterday the order is unconstitutional and it's too vague and broad. It says U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin violated Trump's First Amendment rights, along with the rights of people who want to hear him speak. Chutkin is overseeing special counsel Jack Smith as January 6th case against Trump. ACLU attorneys wrote in a brief that the defendant can't possibly know what he's allowed to say and what he is not. It also called Trump's ability to speak about the prosecution inseparable from his 2024 presidential campaign, and that includes potential witnesses and testimony. Attorneys for Trump have appealed Chutkin's order, which she temporarily lifted until that appeals process plays out. The ACLU is urging Chutkin to reevaluate the order. Representative Jamal Bowman received a misdemeanor charge yesterday for triggering a fire alarm in the House office building incident. The fire alarm caused an hour-long evacuation of the building. 
It happened while lawmakers struggled to pass a bill to avoid a government shutdown. Bowman admitted he pulled the alarm but said while rushing to a cast while rushing to cast his vote, a door was closed. He said he thought pulling the alarm would help him open it. Bowman told Fox News he'd reached a plea deal with prosecutors, allowing him to pay a $1,000 fine and serve three months probation. If Bowman successfully completes his probation, the charge will then be dropped. Republican Congresswoman Lisa McLean introduced a motion to censure Bowman formally after his indictment. Bowman called the incident a lapse in judgment and said he had no intention of wrongdoing. In other news now, Bud Light is becoming the official sponsor of UFC, a mixed martial arts league. The two companies announced this Tuesday as part of a broader effort to revive Bud Light from a sales slump. And here with us live is NTD business host Don Ma to tell us more. Don, good morning. Now please give us an overview of this deal between Bud Light and UFC. Sure, uh, the Ultimate Fighting Championship or uh, UFC signed a multi-year marketing deal with Anheuser-Busch uh, and its Bud Light brand. So the brewer will now become the official UFC's beer partner uh, in the U.S. starting January 1st, uh, 2024. And Bud Light will actually replace Modelo uh, as UFC's beer sponsor. and. As Kevin mentioned earlier, this move aims to boost uh, the Bud Light brand uh, because, you know, sales of Bud Light have been uh, sinking and they still are. Volumes are down 30% in October compared to last year. Uh, but financial details of the deal were not very clear. Um, Bloomberg reported that uh, the global agreement here is the UFC's largest sponsorship ever, surpassing $175 million. Uh, of course, this is uh, citing a person familiar with the matter. And it should come as no surprise that some Republican UFC fans have reportedly canceled their membership over this. So what has been the reaction to Bud Light becoming the official beer for UFC? Well, it's no surprise, right? Um, some people are angry, uh, the reactions here uh, to the deal. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying that these reactions are representative of, of everyone, but it's definitely there, um, you know, considering the controversy Bud Light had in the past year with transgender influencer Dylan Mulvaney um, and, and hashtags as well, uh, such as uh, boycott Bud Light have cropped up on social media platform X as well as the hashtag uh, boycott UFC. Uh, people are saying that, you know, it's a bad move here. Some say it's time to boycott the UFC in addition to Bud Light, and some doubt the move will actually help Bud Light recover, even though that's the aim here. But I have to, uh, men I have to mention here that uh, this isn't the first time Bud Light has partnered with UFC. It's not something unprecedented. Uh, Bud Light was actually UFC's original beer sponsor more than 15 years ago. Mm. Really just sounds like it's not the boost they were hoping for. Well, do you have anything else for us today? Yeah, uh, some big news regarding the UA UAW. Uh, they announced a tentative contract agreement with Ford last night. Uh, it could signal the end of a nearly six-week strike uh, with the automaker. The, the agreement includes a 25% pay raise. Um, it also offers members cost of living adjustments and other benefits. Uh, the tentative deal must be approved and and by rank and file members, uh, the union still remains on strike against Delantis and GM. That's all from me. 25%, that's about the middle 
path, I would say. You know, the 40% was what they were asking for at some point, and then 10% is what you commonly expect from these kinds of negotiations. So, Well, yeah, so good insights. Thank you so much, Don Ma, host of NTD Business. Yeah, thank you. Students at a Pennsylvania school district walked out yesterday. They were protesting a district policy that allegedly allows boys who identify as girls to use girls' bathrooms and locker rooms. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the protest. Dozens of students walked out in the Penn Delco School District on Wednesday. A large group of parents and supporters were there to encourage them. The protest comes after parents and students repeatedly complained about the policy that allows boys who identify as girls to use female spaces. Turning Point USA member Jewel Gilbert says the most compassionate thing may be to have a policy more like what the protesting parents are fighting for, something that keeps everybody safe. So that when the student, these, a trans-identifying student is walking into the bathroom, that they don't have to be looked at as something to fear. And that's the situation that these school districts are making trans-identifying students an object of fear in the face of other students because they are in a place where the other students don't feel safe, which is in their bathroom. Gilbert says it's unnecessary to put any kid in that situation. Every school district, I think, can put in a policy of simply having a gender-neutral bathroom or a single-use bathroom that keeps trans-identifying students safe and that they're able to use at their leisure. Music educator Joe Dyshala graduated from Sun Valley High School, the site of the walkout. Young people are being led down a path that is absolutely wrong, and the people that are supposed to be taking care of them are not. There's a reason kids are called dependents, because they depend on adults to do the right thing for them. And when the adults don't do the right thing, you're going to see great kids coming out here and standing up for themselves and doing exactly what they should do, which is their birthright as Americans. Daishala says the school district needs to get in front of these issues. They're not leaders, they're followers. And we know the old saying, lead follower, get out of the way. And uh, if they don't want to lead, they need to follow these young students. And if they don't want to do that, they need to resign and get out of there, is what I say. Retired woman June McAndrew has grandchildren that go to school in the district. The grandmother says she has no problem with people who identify as transgender. Her only issue is the safe spaces of kids being violated. Make three bathrooms, boys, girls, and unisex. Put one in for unisex, and if you choose to use that bathroom, fine. Tenth grader Jaden Hoffman took part in the protests. She says boys being able to use the girls' bathrooms frightens her. The student says she has heard of assaults that occurred in other schools with similar policies. Pendelco School District Superintendent George Steinhoff responded to the protest in a local news article. He says approval to use opposite-sex facilities is not automatic and that there is a process involving a counselor. Steinhoff added that Sun Valley provides both multi-user and single-user restrooms to maximize privacy and convenience. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Well, you know, Evelyn, we've often seen parents speak out about these kinds of things, but when the students themselves walk out, then you know it's really serious. Yeah, and I, since then, I... Reportedly, the principal of the school, um, that's what the Washington Examiner saw in a newsletter email, he warned that it could now affect their grade possibly, grades possibly because um, of attendance. So that's the latest development. Ah, the price of speaking freely. Right.
Stay with us, we're going to break the Israel-Hamas war could be shifting the balance of power in the world. We speak to an analyst to give us his insight on what this could mean for the U.S. China and Russia have vetoed a U.S.-backed resolution in the Israel-Hamas conflict. Both countries refuse to condemn Hamas for the attack and are pushing for a ceasefire. Find out, find out the U.S.'s response after the break. Leaders of all EU member countries are meeting in Brussels today. Topics will include the conflicts in the Middle East and Ukraine, as well as migration. Find out the details after the break. Welcome back. And sticking with the Israel-Hamas war, the world is split on this conflict. And beyond that, China analyst Antonio Graceffo argues that it's altering the global balance of power. We're now bringing him in to dig deeper into this issue. He's also the author of Beyond the Belt and Road, China's Global Economic uh, Expansion. Good morning, Antonio. It's really good to have you. Now, first, tell me more about the shifts of power that you've been seeing here. How did the Israel-Hamas war trigger that? First of all, you have uh, both China and Russia on the UN Security Council. Uh, Russia, think about this. Russia is a country where the president is not even allowed to leave the country and travel to any country that has uh, that is a signatory to the International Court of Justice because of an arrest warrant. So this is a country that should be politically irrelevant at this point. But because they sit on the Security Council now, suddenly they become relevant again. So you're also saying that you're pointing out that NATO members, for instance, as well, they're split on that. How problematic do you um, think this kind of split in the world is? It's very problematic because what China is doing, China is putting itself out there as a friend to the Muslim world. They're supporting Palestine. Uh, Russia has a long history with Iran. So uh, they are they are uh, openly supporting uh, the Muslim side on this. Then they're both on the Security Council. Um, they're getting their allies to, to uh, go into their camp. They're voting down the resolutions on the Security Council. So we're really seeing a polarization, you know, two blocks forming here. So with this, with these two blocks forming, are we seeing a shift in the U.S. position as well? Talking about, you know, the, the new world order that so many are talking about now. Well, it's certainly threatening the U.S.-led international order. Uh, particularly in the Middle East, but we see that it's spreading out through the world because even Latin America, uh, Latin American countries for the most part are falling into the uh, Chinese and Russian orbit. So we're seeing polarization there. We're seeing it in Asia, the various Asian countries. Um, and, and of course, Muslim countries like, like Indonesia and Malaysia uh, will tend to support Palestine, which is going to then push them out of the U.S. orbit because the U.S. is supporting Israel. So I think uh, for some context that might be necessary here, why should Americans um, or you know citizens around the world be um, concerned with that? Well, what we're concerned about is that uh, China is building its coalition and China's goal is to create a world order that is led by China. But at the end of the day, the purpose of that world order would be to benefit China rather than to create an open and free system uh, where everyone can benefit. So, for example, if you look at trade relations, uh, if you look at the, the Belt and Road Initiative, you look at BRICS, you look at all these, they basically are ways of China facilitating trade with China rather than facilitating trade among the members. So politically, it's the same way. China wants to create a, a China-led world order that 
facilitates China that does not necessarily help these other countries interact with each other. Right, no, so if we can call this this challenge of power um, for, for the EU and the U.S., what's being done about that from the EU and the U.S.? Is it enough? Well, it, it's very difficult. It's a very difficult situation. Now, at the end of the day, Saudi Arabia is going to be a key player in this. Saudi Arabia generally makes decisions based on making money from oil, and they're going to do what's best for Saudi Arabia more than uh, to follow, say, an ideological uh, uh, system. So Saudi Arabia, for the moment, I think, is, is remaining quiet, and they're probably going to wait and see which way the wind blows, wait and see if this thing explodes, if, if it spills over. And I think what may happen is that Saudi Arabia will drift back into the U.S. camp, and then if that happens, of course, Kuwait and some of our other uh, allies in the region will drift back into our camp, because I don't know that they have really at their core an interest in seeing the world split, and they certainly don't want to go into a China and Russia-led camp. I see. That's at least reassuring to hear. So thank you so much for your analysis. As always, Antonio Graceffo, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. European Union leaders are meeting in Brussels today to discuss the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Another topic for discussion is offering continued support for Ukraine in its war against Russia's invasion. The summit will be the first in-person meeting of the EU's 27 national leaders since the Hamas terrorist attack on Israel. Entities Cost Hamanas brings us the details. The recent Hamas attack on Israel was unanimously condemned by all EU leaders. But beyond that, there was less consistency. Some stressed Israel's right to self-defense, while others emphasized concern about Palestinian civilians. Several EU leaders have recently visited the Middle East to express solidarity with Israel and bolster diplomatic efforts, including French President Emmanuel Macron and German Chancellor Olaf Scholz. Officials fear that an escalation of the conflict could have grave consequences for Europe, such as rising tensions between local communities, Islamic terrorist attacks, and a heavy influx of refugees. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky will address the summit by video link. Support for Kyiv will have first place in the summit declaration. The EU and its member countries have provided billions in assistance to Ukraine since the start of the war with Russia. But the Israel-Hamas conflict has raised concerns with some officials that it may overshadow political attention toward Ukraine. At the summit, leaders will also have their first debate on the budget package, which would include over $70 billion to Ukraine in military and financial aid. The topic is expected to be contentious, as countries clash over priorities and sources of funding. Additionally, the Commission has asked for over $15 billion to deal with migration, as well as further money to cover increased borrowing costs for joint EU debt as interest rates rise. Cost MNS, NTD News. Russia and China yesterday vetoed a U.S. push for the United Nations Security Council to act on the Israel-Hamas conflict. The resolution draft proposed by the U.S. is aimed at addressing a worsening humanitarian crisis in Gaza. It calls for pauses to the violence and allow aid access. Ten council members voted in favor of the resolution, while the United Arab Emirates also voted against it. Brazil and Mozambique abstained from the vote. A further vote on a Russian-drafted resolution called for a humanitarian ceasefire 
China and the United Arab Emirates were the only countries to vote in favor of the Russian draft, with nine other members abstaining from the vote. The U.S. and Britain voted against it, saying a ceasefire would only benefit Hamas. China has never condemned the terrorist attack and put pressure on Israel to stop bombing Gaza. At least nine votes are needed for a resolution. It also requires no vetoes by the U.S., France, Britain, Russia or China for it to be adopted. Just ahead, coded religious messages detected in media outlets that cater to Iraqi militias. A report says those signal imminent assaults on U.S. bases. A security analyst tells us how this may be connected to the October 7th Hamas attack. How can America and its allies stop Hamas, Hezbollah and Iran from evading sanctions and financing terror? We have the highlights from a House hearing on that topic. That's after the break. Welcome back. More attacks on U.S. bases by Iraqi militias are believed to be in the works. That's according to the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, which is interpreting messages found in a social media news outlet that caters to the Iraqi resistance. To learn more about this, I spoke to retired Army colonel and senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy. Watch. Colonel John Mills, thank you for your time this morning. How do we know if these coded religious messages are just saber rattling or actual credible threats? Well, uh, I think we have to take this as part of the overall campaign. Uh, Hamas was just one element of this overall campaign orchestrated by Iran and really by its master, China. So uh, what was different about the Hamas attack, what it was a very large barrage, largest since 1973, and during the barrage, coordinated assault through multiple breach points. I think we have to pay attention to this in both Iraq and Syria, where uh, uh, it's uh, al-Assad has been rocketed. That on the road uh, from uh, Baghdad to Syria. That's what really our largest base camp in Iraq. That's been rocketed. And also uh, Al-Tamp right across the border in Syria uh, on the same road. Uh, so we have to be careful not just for rocketing will they attempt to assault these bases. You have to look at this as an organized overall campaign. So why would they want to attack U.S. infrastructure in the region? Because we are the enemy. It's as simple as that. I mean, that, that's part of, uh, this is part of taking down America. This is part of the overall no boundaries agreement uh, with uh, China at the head, Russia's the major junior partner, but uh, Iran has a uh, very close to major junior partner. This is part of a coordinated campaign. So they want America out of the Middle East and they will, they will attack American facilities. So at the same time that the U.S. is urging not to create an escalating conflict between Israel and Hezbollah, why would these militia groups target the U.S., thus causing the U.S. to have to respond in some way? Because they really don't care what this administration says. They don't care. It's ineffective. The messaging is, is all over the place, but in, in the end, uh, it communicates weakness and lack of resolve. They sense that, and they're attacking. So how do these Iraq-backed and Iraq-backed militias work together? Well, uh, this is what Soleimani, who uh, was take, taken, uh, uh, eliminated during the, the President Trump's tenure, first, first term, uh, this is uh, 
you, Iran is coordinating these and telling them what to do, wh where to hit, and that's our, those are our biggest base camps. So the message is, uh, well, I mean, we need to watch out. These are these are going to turn into ground assaults if we're, we're not careful and uh, eliminate the threats now. Yeah, well, these messages saying things like, you know, wait until tomorrow and the Freeman's eyes will be happy. Those things have preceded major attacks in the past. So what does the United States need to do in preparation here? Well, our base camps are very vulnerable inside of Iraq and Syria. It's been a very light touch, but still, it's it's the forever war complex that President Trump uh, was undoing, but uh, Biden has reinstated. And we're, we, the military term is we're accepting risk, because so far, what's defended these base camps is their stealth nature and also the fear of possible American uh, attacks uh, in response. We're, we're uh, focused on Israel right now. These are vulnerable camps and our ability to provide air cover, uh, provide fire support is distracted at this point in time. It's always great getting your insight. Retired Colonel John Mills, Senior Fennel at the Center for Security Policy, thank you. Kevin, thank you, an honor to be on your show. How can America and its allies stop Hamas, Hezbollah, and Iran from evading sanctions and financing terror? A hearing yesterday by the House Committee on Financial Services worked to find answers to this problem. Here are the highlights. The U.S. has a decades-long history of economic sanctions against Iran. Iran continues to fund terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah and continues to evade economic sanctions. So how does Iran fund these and other terrorist groups? And what can the United States do to stop it? The United States began imposing sanctions on Iran shortly after revolutionaries seized the U.S. Embassy in Tehran in 1979. Over the years, as Iran continued to support terrorism and international chaos, the sanction regime responded and grew to the, into the largest and most complex imposed on any country in the world. Congressman Blaine Lukemeyer says sanctions were working until the U.S. changed policies toward Iran. But in 2015, the Obama administration negotiated a deal that was supposedly intended to stop Iran's nuclear program, known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. The JCPOA relaxed many of the tough and effective sanctions that the U.S. took years to implement, freeing up billions of dollars for the regime and reviving its economy. Jason Brodsky is policy director for the group United Against Nuclear Iran. An Israeli security source told Reuters recently that Iran raised its funding for Hamas's military ring over the last year from $100 million to around $350 million per year. One suggested solution was to apply pressure on other countries besides Iran to stop supporting these terrorist groups. The Qataris and the Turks need to be held accountable. We can't sit here today and empower countries to host Hamas leaders, to give them money, to give them ideological support, to use their media, their state media, to amplify their propaganda and disinformation. Lock down the money, lock down the $6 billion. Don't forget about the $10 billion that was made available over the summer, transferred out of Iraq to Oman. We have no information on that money today. Iran, Hamas, and Hezbollah receive millions through cryptocurrency. One witness explained the difficulty in shutting down that source of revenue. The problem is not primarily onshore in the United States. The problem is offshore, crypto financial service providers that refuse to play ball with U.S. law enforcement because they don't have to. 
Richard Goldberg from the Foundation for Defense of Democracies addressed the topic of political division. And this is a moment to restore bipartisanship on issues that used to be completely bipartisan and can be again. This is a moment. If this is not going to be the moment, I don't know what will be. This is just the first in a series of hearings planned to address this matter. Yeah, and meanwhile, the U.S. is calling on its Middle East allies in the terrorist financing targeting center to cut off more funding for Hamas. Right. I mean, I think it's difficult, right, because you see this alliance now that has um, countries in there that have more financial means than like than before and by that I mean like after 9-11 the terrorist groups they had um, definitely less of these financial means than now, than now if you look at China and Russia although some would then argue that China's economy is just a house of cards now right so yeah well you know you think about funding and a lot of it comes from Iran for these terrorist groups oil is a primary bolster to their economy so right. the, the less dependent the United States and other nations can be on that the more that it's going to reduce that amount of fungible funds that they can use to pump into these terrorist organizations. That's also true, yeah. So we're going to go to a different topic when we come back. What is the impact that Islamic terror groups have on students and the American public? We hear from a foreign policy analyst and the host of America's Hope, so stay with us. Welcome back. A network of terror organizations in the Middle East linked together through the Iranian regime. Is American foreign policy effectively working against this threat? Walid Faris, a foreign policy analyst and the author of Iran, an imperialist republic and U.S. policy, spoke to Kelly Wright, host of America's Hope. You know, you and I have covered a lot in the past as it relates to terrorism. Uh, what's happening with uh, Israel is no exception to the fact that this was uh, a, a, an attack, uh, a surprise attack on October 7th, uh, committed by Hamas, a known terrorist organization. I guess my first question is uh, about this is what are the main messages of, of your book and how it relates to what we're seeing unfold in Israel? Uh, the first message was really for the readers, for the American public, to understand that there is a regional uh, network of uh, terror organizations all linked up to the Iran regime for many, many years. Unfortunately, uh, Kelly, our um, educational system, the academic system, uh, did not really inform and educate the American public, those students who really later will become uh, the graduate students who will go to uh, news newsrooms, uh, to war rooms, to courtrooms. So there was a systemic failure in, that I've seen here in Middle Eastern studies in teaching the American public as to the nature of what we're seeing. I mean, obviously, you and I in the past have discussed the other jihadi organizations such as the Muslim, Muslim Brotherhood, uh, you know, uh, Hezbollah, uh, others, Qaeda, Daesh, but that specific network that links Hamas to the Iran regime is something that most Americans were not really familiar with. And to talk more about the pro-Hamas movements on college campuses, we have Kelly Wright, host of America's Hope, joining us now live. Kelly, uh, really good to see you. And I know that you've been speaking to counterterrorism experts. Now tell me more about what they're telling you about the pro-Hamas protests uh, on college campuses. 
Well, good morning to you as well. It's an it's a honor to be here. I will tell you that Wally Ferris is one of the best uh, as it relates to foreign policy and counterterrorism. Uh, he speaks with expertise, and he basically says that the nexus of terror really stems from, as we've heard from other guests and analysts on our program this morning, stems from Iran and that flow of money going into not only funding uh, terrorist acts like Hamas and Hezbollah and other groups throughout their region, but also Walid talks about going back to the 1990s when a lot of money began to flow and in and then what what Iran has done systematically is actually provide money to college campuses, uh, provide money into Middle Eastern studies, and coming all the way up to the present time, what's happened is is that there's been a an increasing amount of radicalization of our own students. This is what they do. They educate students in their own countries to be radicalized, and the same thing uh, Walid denotes is happening here. Keeping in mind as Wally told me in my interview, is that uh, Iran considers the United States being the great Satan and Israel being the little Satan. Wow, incredible. Um, and talking about um, that, what are these concerns that these experts that you speak to, what are the concerns that they have about Richmond City, for example, like the resolution, that's the California town that voted, basically vote, uh, voting to accuse Israel of uh, ethnic cleansing. Yeah, again, it goes to the core of what's happening in our educational systems, and as a result of that, what's happening in terms of misinformation, miseducation, and then the propaganda machine that is actually fueled. Uh, even our own Congress, there are members of Congress who uh, agree with Hamas and actually defend Hamas. Uh, in, in basically talking about how they're concerned about the humanitarian needs of the Palestinian people, that's rightly placed. but. People must understand, as the counterterrorism experts have told me, they must understand that Hamas is a terrorist organization that is in full control of what goes on throughout Gaza and the West Bank. Therefore, beware uh, of how we deal with Hamas in the future and understand Israel's right to defend itself. And so all of these things are now coming, spilling over into uh, the mainstream and how do we deal with it on college campuses as well as in a, a, a city council voting to say that uh, ethnic cleansing is what Israel is guilty of. It's all turning against Israel, keeping in mind that the aim is to call Israel the little Satan and the United States the big Satan, which means there's a target on both nations. Right, and on what you said, that it's all turning against Israel. So would you say that these kind of actions, they're part of that growing tide of anti-Semitism? Absolutely. Uh, we've seen uh, not just an uptick, but uh, an increase of anti-Semitic behavior in this country for a number of years. Uh, will that grow? That's what many rabbis that I've spoken to are fearful of. Ma many security experts, I just spoke to one security expert in Los Angeles, and he says that he's received more uh, request to guard synagogues and uh, rabbis throughout uh, that city. So as we continue to see this increase, there is quite a growing concern in terms of how our security deals with this. And of course, it's always important to be vigilant, but it's also important to be proactive in getting our educational house in order, our funding in order, and our security, our national security in order. Well, thank you so much, Kelly Wright, for filling us uh, in on all this, host of America's Hope. Thank you. And you can watch the full episode of America's Hope on NTD.com, and this coming episode will be aired on Monday, November 30th. 
That's right. And at this point, we are also kicking off our second part of the broadcast. Police are searching for a person of interest after a shooting in Maine left at least 16 people dead. With dozens injured, residents are being asked to shelter in place. Israel updates the number of hostages held by Hamas as fuel at Gaza hospitals runs critically low. At first, Turkey's President Erdogan had sympathy for Israel after the Hamas terrorist attack, but now he's taken a U-turn defending Hamas and is calling on other nations to pressure Israel into ending the war. A geopolitical analyst tells us what effect this could have. Who is newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson? We take a look at his past experience and what he plans to do next. And a service dog gives new meaning to a veteran's life after losing her hearing in Afghanistan. Welcome back and to all those now joining us, good morning. Good morning for me as well, and we have some updates on the tragic news in the U.S. last night. A New England manhunt is underway after two shootings in Maine. A local counselor says the death toll could be as high as 22, with up to 50 injured. Police did not say how many of those injuries were from gunfire. Shootings happened at a restaurant and bowling alley in the city of Lewiston around 7 p.m. local time, with a suspect still at large. Police are asking locals to shelter in place. Eyewitnesses described seeing people, including children, running from the area and being patted down by police officers. The person of interest, 40-year-old Robert Card of Bowdoin, Maine, is a certified firearms instructor and member of the U.S. Army Reserve. Law enforcement officials say Card has reported mental health issues, which included hearing voices. Authorities say he recently threatened to carry out a shooting at a National Guard facility in the state. Police released pictures of a suspect, a bearded man in a long-sleeved shirt and jeans, holding a rifle in the firing position, along with a picture of a vehicle of interest found in Lisbon about eight miles from the scene. The shelter-in-place has been expanded there as well, with some schools closed today as a search unfolds. The FBI and state police are asking anyone with information or tips to call in. The White House said President Biden spoke with Maine Governor Janet Mills by phone and offered full federal support in what he called a horrific attack. Authorities have scheduled a news conference for 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time in Lewiston. And Israel's military said today the number of hostages held by Hamas has reached 224, but it says that number is changing and could rise. IDF spokesperson Jonathan Conricus says Israel believes the terrorist group is also hoarding fuel in Gaza. Watch. We assess that there's between 800,000 and perhaps more than 1 million liters of fuel of different types stored inside Gaza under the control of Hamas. Some of it stockpiled before, some of it stolen from the UN, some of it stolen by Hamas from private vendors and essentially controlled as really the hardest currency that currently exists in Gaza by Hamas, dripping it to hospitals and other facilities, while these facilities are constantly claiming to the world that they are running short and soon won't be able to operate. 
Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said Wednesday that Israel is preparing a ground invasion of Gaza. The Prime Minister declined to provide any details on the timing or other information about the operation. Netanyahu says the decision on when forces would go in would be made by the government's special war cabinet. The prime minister added that Israel had already killed thousands of terrorists, but that it's only the beginning. Israel has carried out days of intense bombardment of the densely populated Gaza Strip following the October 7th Hamas terror attack. Netanyahu also discussed the security failures that led to the Hamas attack, saying all those involved would be called to account after the war. And Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan made his most controversial comments yet on the Gaza conflict. He said yesterday that Hamas was not a terrorist organization, but a liberation group fighting to protect Palestinian lands. Erdogan added that Turkey condemned the civilian deaths caused by the Hamas October 7th massacre, but also strongly criticized Israel's bombardment of Gaza. Unlike many of its NATO allies and the European Union, Turkey hosts members of the terrorist group on its territory. The country also backs a two-state solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict. Erdogan was also critical of Western nations' support for Israel's bombing of Gaza, comparing it to murder and mental illness. He also called for an immediate ceasefire and a free flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza. Israel rejected Erdogan's claims. A foreign ministry spokesperson responded by calling Hamas a despicable terrorist organization. The fighting in Gaza comes when Turkey is working to mend its ties with Israel, but those efforts appear to have been suspended after Erdogan accused Israel of taking advantage of Turkey's good intentions. He also canceled a previously planned visit to Israel. And next, we're going to unpack the complex relationship between Turkey, the U.S., and the war between Israel and Hamas terrorists. Brandon Weikert, a geopolitical analyst and author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, joins us live. Good morning, Brandon. It's great to see you. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So as we mentioned, at first, Turkey's leader Erdogan reached out to Israeli counterpart after the attack, but now he's backing Hamas. So how will that support affect Hamas's war effort? Well, Turkey has always backed Hamas. They've backed Hezbollah. They've also been in bed with the Iranians since at least 2013, the gold for oil scandal that erupted back then under Erdogan. Um, Erdogan envisions build, rebuilding the Ottoman Empire with himself as the new sultan. So um, the notion that he is in any way a friend to Israel is not correct. He is an enemy to Israel. Uh, he certainly no longer supports the American-led order in the region, and I think he's probably nominally working along with the Iranians, Chinese, and Russians to reorder the Middle East so that America no longer runs the show and our allies on the ground are weakened. And Antony Blinken simply gave a phone call to his counterpart in Turkey. So how do you think that this step by Erdogan is going to impact U.S.-Turkey relations? Oh, it's a disaster. And remember, the same week that the Hamas terror attacks happened in Israel, Turkey did a surprise bombardment of our friends, the Kurds, in northern Iraq and northern Syria. And now, after it was announced that the Gerald R. Ford and Eisenhower carrier battle groups were deploying to the eastern Mediterranean, Turkey has moved its navy, along with northern Cyprus's navy, into the Gerald Ford's area of responsibility 
and they're now conducting live fire exercises within the vicinity of our carrier groups as a means to try to scare our Navy out of the region. And so this is a NATO ally, supposedly, and they're acting this way toward the United States. Uh, this is not a good scenario, and it indicates to me that Turkey can no longer be trusted at all. Do you think that the support that Erdogan is showing for Hamas stems from his constituents, the Turkish people, or is it him personally? Uh, I think that he has a large following among the more traditional voters in Turkey. He is an Islamist, um, and so he has support in that level. But, um, you know, this is really him trying to flex his muscles and show the region that he is the new sultan that they haven't had in over a century since the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in 1923. So Erdogan initially proposed that Turkey could be a mediator here with his proposed visit to Israel. But now instead he's calling on other nations to put a stop to Israel's effort to destroy Hamas. What do you think this effect is going to have here? Well, the reason he's doing this is because he wasn't sincere about being a mediator. The moment the Americans backed Israel, that's when he shifted and became, uh, you know, Mr. I love Hamas. Um, what this is going to do is further divide the region into two camps, the Iranian, Chinese, Russian, uh, pro-Hamas, pro-Hezbollah camp uh, versus the American-backed uh, Iran, I'm sorry, the American-backed Israel camp. Um, with Saudi Arabia kind of in this middle position, and now Turkey apparently weighing in on the side of the Iran-Russian-Chinese axis. Tell us a little bit more about the implications of Turkey being a NATO ally, especially in the context that we're seeing U.S. bases being attacked in the region and how they're going to affect relations between them and Iran. Yeah, so Turkey has been a very difficult NATO ally. Some of it is our fault. We didn't sell them the Patriot missiles under the Obama administration in 2012. Then the Obama administration went after Erdogan because of election fraud and things like that, human rights violations. So we certainly did our share of alienating Turkey. But to be clear, Turkey, the moment they put Erdogan and his Islamist party in power, Turkey was never going to be a reliable ally. So what this means is that southern defense flank of NATO is completely exposed. Turkey has aligned itself with Russia. They've aligned itself with our enemies in the Middle East. They're working with uh, China. Uh, and so when push comes to shove, we cannot rely on Turkey as the bulwark of NATO in the southern part of Europe. It also could mean the collapse of NATO because, remember, we need all of those states working together in NATO for it to be an effective security alliance. So this is a real nightmare scenario for all the pro-NATO people in Washington. It does present a challenge. Of course, NATO is obviously a much larger block, Turkey just being a, a fragment of that. Brandon Weikert, author of The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, and geopolitical analyst, thank you. Thank you. Coming up, who is Congressman Mike Johnson? We take a look at the newly elected House Speaker's history and what comes next. The coveted Michelin star has been granted to several restaurants in Atlanta. We give you the delicious details when we come back. Good to have you back. President Biden sending a direct warning to Beijing as he welcomes the Australian Prime Minister to the White House. The two leaders yesterday vowing to uphold peace in the Indo-Pacific amid wars in Europe and the Middle East. 
NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. As tensions rise in the Middle East, President Biden stressing the strategic importance of the Indo-Pacific. He tells Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese that their alliance is being an anchor to peace and prosperity in the Indo-Pacific. And Biden directly warning Beijing that its latest aggressive actions in the South China Sea could trigger the involvement of U.S. troops. Just this past week, the PRC vessels acted dangerously and unlawfully. Any attack on the Filipino aircraft vessels or armed forces will invoke a mut our mutual defense treaty with the Philippines. Biden says it's not looking for conflicts, but both leaders emphasize the need to compete with Beijing. Biden also vowed to get more funding for the AUKUS deal to get Australia nuclear-powered submarines, a move viewed as another bid to counter China's military ambitions in the Pacific. Meanwhile, as Israel prepares for a ground offensive into Gaza, President Biden lays out this as his vision about what future he seeks. Israelis and Palestinians equally deserve to live side by side, ensuring Hamas can no longer terrorize Israel. And while Biden urges Israel to be incredibly careful to focus on going after Hamas and avoid hurting civilians, he says he has, quote, no confidence in the casualty numbers being reported by the Hamas-run Gaza Health Ministry. Reporting from the White House, Aris Tao, NTD News. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says he will work with Chinese diplomat Wang Yi this week to keep the conflict in the Middle East from spreading. Blinken asked members of the United Nations Security Council to do the same as tensions flare following the terrorist attack on Israel. Wang arrives in Washington today and is set to meet with President Biden and National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan this week. The White House says talks also aim to clear up misperceptions and miscommunications. The U.S. is looking to make sure disagreements over issues like trade, Taiwan and the South China Sea do not veer into conflict. China has called for a ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war and criticized Israel for its retaliation. And after a turbulent three weeks searching for a speaker, the House representatives finally decided on a leader. House Republicans voted unanimously to elect Speaker Mike Johnson on the first ballot yesterday. The ascension of the 56th House Speaker clears the way for the lower chamber to resume its basic duties and respond to the crisis in the Middle East. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on what you need to know about newly elected House Speaker Mike Johnson. House Speaker Mike Johnson has been a man of many hats. Vice Chair of the House Republican Conference, he's been Chair of the Republican Study Committee and held the Assistant Leadership role of GOP Deputy Whip. He sat on the Judiciary Committee, the Armed Services Committee, and the Select Committee on Weaponization of the Federal Government. The Louisiana Republican was first elected to the House in 2016. The 51-year-old attorney with a focus on constitutional law now has a series of near-immediate decisions to make and the challenge of uniting fractures within the GOP majority. Johnson's first move as Speaker was bringing a non-binding resolution to the floor, reaffirming support of Israel's right to self-defense. It passed with strong bipartisan approval, with over 400 lawmakers backing the measure. Let the enemies of freedom around the world hear us loud and clear. The People's House is back in business. The newly elected Speaker's agenda focuses heavily on completing the appropriations process before the government funding deadline next month. Johnson says he aims to pass eight remaining appropriations bills in quick succession and wants to avoid a repeat end-of-year frenzy in 2025 by having bills done by the end of July without recess until all 12 appropriations bills are approved. 
He proposed moving some bills out of appropriations and into working groups to address problems including the failed farm bill last month. He did not rule out another stopgap spending bill. Johnson has opposed further aid to Ukraine, voting against a close to $40 billion aid package in May. He supported bills to tighten border security, prohibit mask mandates on planes, and stop gender-related surgery and hormone procedures on teens. Johnson has been a vocal supporter of former President Trump and was among the nearly 140 Republicans that disputed 2020 Electoral College results. He is the author of an unsuccessful appeal from House Republicans to the Supreme Court to have the integrity of the election looked at. That was over changes to voting procedures in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan during the pandemic, he argued were unconstitutional. Trump reacted to Johnson's victory, saying he's a tremendous leader and will be a great speaker. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Well, so finally, we have a new House Speaker. That's good news. Yes, and certainly you can expect leadership in Israel to be relieved now that there is one. That's right. And for more good news, I turn to you right now. <laughs> Service dogs have been instrumental in helping veterans with PTSD, but what about the hearing impaired? A high-ranking soldier found herself suffering from both after a rocket in Afghanistan nearly killed her. Now she's advocating on behalf of veterans who need a canine companion. NTD's Andrew Thomas reports. I can love another dog. Afghanistan, 2006. Command Sergeant Major Gretchen Evans was at a remote forward operating base on the Pakistan border. She was there to remind her soldiers to remain vigilant. With less than eight weeks left in deployment, her troops were starting to think about going home. Just as she finished speaking, the base received incoming fire. And I mean, I literally just got the words out of my mouth and uh, we started receiving rocket fire and it was coming in like rain, I mean like rain. Eyewitnesses say the blast threw Evans headfirst into a concrete bunker. Three of her troops were killed. When she woke up in a military hospital in Germany, she learned she was deaf and had suffered a traumatic brain injury. Her army career was over. Not only did I not have a purpose, but the passion had been knocked out of me because um, I loved my job, I loved my career. Like many veterans, Evans struggled to adjust to the civilian world. As a high-ranking female soldier, she felt even more isolated and depressed, but she wouldn't let her injuries define her. There's something in me kind of stirred, and I thought, no, that's not who I am. I'm Gretchen. I'm a retired command sergeant major. I'm a, I'm a daughter. I'm a sister. I'm a mother. I'm a wife. I'm lots of things. Evans knew that veterans with PTSD often benefited from service dogs. But what about someone who'd lost their hearing? She started to do some research and came across an organization called America's Vet Dogs. She asked if they had service dogs for the deaf. I didn't know what to say, really. I was just, I was looking um, for some hope. I was looking for something that would give me hope because I was running out of it. Evans got an email back with one word in it, yes. She didn't know it at the time, but America's vet dogs had never trained a dog for a deaf person. But that wasn't going to stop them from helping Evans. They said the one thing that actually kept me alive for the next six months. They said yes. And so the word yes, I think is a powerful word because yes opens doors and yes gives people hope. Six months later in January, 2015, Evans got Aura a Golden Retriever Black Lab mix. Aura can alert her to sounds like doorbells, home appliances, phone notifications, and other noises by tapping Evans's leg. 
Aura was also trained to recognize emergency vehicle sirens so Evans could get her driver's license. I don't know how to tell you how that felt to have my independence back again, that I could take myself to the market, that I could drive to the gym, that I could go places without having to rely on my husband or friends. Aura motivated Evans to become an ambassador for Dogtopia's Dogs Save Lives initiative. She advocates for any veteran who wants a service dog. Aura is my superpower. She is she has made me no longer a disabled person. She's made me a whole. Evans says the first step is to ask, because she knows what asking did for her. It gave her aura and her life back. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. I'm just so glad those dogs could get those vets the help they need. Yeah, that's very heartwarming to see. And I think, you know, animals and Dogs, animals in general probably are way more sensitive than people may think, you know. They are really valuable in helping these vets. You know, I did a story on Paws of War that brings these dogs back from overseas after they are in the combat situations. And then they get them out to these vets and they help them by actually waking them up if they have PTSD and they're going through a night terror. Somehow dogs can sense that when they're sleeping. Right. And um, I also, coincidentally, also did a piece with puppies behind bars a while ago, I think. And um, they are, they're trained behind bars, hence the name, but they are for uh, police in New York City or all around the U.S. actually. And I had an interview with somebody um, that keeps one of those dogs and they're saying that when these dogs are there, people get just, they open up naturally. So I think these animals have really have a great impact on human beings. And well, men's best friend, right? Yeah, and those tough jobs, they need a little soft spot, which the dogs exactly. can provide. <laughs> yeah. All right, we're moving on from cute puppies to uh, Michelin star food. The coveted Michelin star rating system is popular with diners and restaurateurs. Customers can be assured of high quality food and owners know that it will bring business. Fine diners in Atlanta or travelers going there can now try five different restaurants who were awarded a Michelin star. Two of the restaurants received a green star, which is a recent designation for establishments that excel in sustainability. According to Michelin's rating system, one star means the restaurant has high quality cooking that's worth a stop. The rating system actually goes up to three stars, so Atlanta restaurants still have something to aim for. Michelin lauded Atlanta eateries, saying their diversity represented both southern and international cuisines well. Sounds amazing. But we don't have it so bad in New York City either. Oh, we got a lot of cuisine here, that's for sure. Yeah, and I, I mean, I have friends that come to New York, and one, two of them were specifically coming here and really just um, eat everywhere. It's <laughs> excellent. Yeah, all right, and we have re uh, reached the end of our show, so we're wrapping up here. We'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for a News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.